When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Presidencies of the United States. Now, I'm sure your first question is, why presidencies, plural? Shouldn't it just be that this is a podcast about the presidency of the United States? The word choice was deliberate, and I think gets at the heart of what I hope to accomplish with this podcast. To say that the presidency in the days of George Washington is the same as that in the days of Barack Obama or FDR or Lincoln or even John Adams, to me, ignores the fact that each person who has occupied the office to date brings unique characteristics, outlooks, goals, strengths, and weaknesses to the office. Of course John Adams couldn't be the same type of president as George Washington. Theodore Roosevelt was short-sighted in thinking that Taft would do exactly as he would do in the office. Even Jefferson and Madison, despite their close friendship and shared ideologies, carried out vastly different presidencies. The presidency is constantly shifting with circumstances, the times, and the occupants. This podcast aims to go one by one to examine each for as many episodes as it takes and to determine what we can learn from each presidency and each president. The series of episodes on each president will be bookended by a brief biography of their life leading up to the presidency in one episode at the beginning, and an episode on their post-presidency and legacy at the end. Naturally, this will make for a challenge for me, as some presidents did not survive to have a post-presidency, and there will be some overlap in some of the narrative. There will likely be some presidents with more episodes than others. Case in point, I'm currently anticipating 13 episodes to cover Washington alone, though that number may change but brevity is not the point. On the flip side, there are going to be some details that I'm not going to be able to cover. If I tried to cover every aspect of every presidency, we could be a decade in and still not be through with Washington. There's a reason why there are new books published every year on Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and FDR, to name a few. My aim will be to touch on certain key aspects, like how the individual approaches the office, major events that occur, pivotal developments in the administration, and items of historical significance. As a history geek, I can assure you that I will try to slip in as many stories and fun factoids that I think are interesting but that are not well known whenever there is a possibility to include it in the narrative. However, the overall goal is not to provide a random set of trivia, but rather to help to develop a greater understanding of presidential history and how it fits into the history of the United States and the world. I deliberately chose the first Sunday after the inauguration of our 45th president to launch this podcast, as I feel that people of the present day suffer from a lack of understanding of the context of recent events. While the 2016 election was abnormal in terms of more modern elections, and there were a couple of elements that were completely unique, I would argue that there was a historical precedent or an example from the past that could be pointed to for most elements of the election. 
The anomaly of this election has reminded people of the truth contained in the apocryphal quote attributed to Thomas Jefferson, quote, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. The aim of this podcast is to provide listeners with the tools of history with which to better see and understand the truths of the present day. Now then, let's get to the business of the presidency. The office of the president was established by Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution, which states, quote, The executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. He shall hold his office during the term of four years, and together with the vice president, chosen for the same term. It goes on to state that, quote, no person except a natural-born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution shall be eligible to the office of president. Neither shall any person be eligible to that office who shall have not attained to the age of 35 years and been 14 years a resident within the United States. Other than that, the Constitution offers no more guidelines as to who can be president. No, really. That's it. Natural-born citizen aged 35 or older who has resided in the U.S. for 14 years. This election is not the first, nor do I imagine it will be the last, where we discuss what the right qualifications for the office are, and the answers have changed over time. We've had presidents who have served in the public sector for decades, while others have had very limited service, if any at all. Some presidents have come from a military background, while others wouldn't know a foxhole from a molehill. Some presidents had experience in business, while others came from a legal background. We've had presidents with PhDs and MBAs, while others did good to have a high school diploma. Turning to someone who's been in the office to provide some insight as to what we should be on the lookout for in terms of presidential material, I quote Dwight D. Eisenhower, who wrote, quote, No individual can be completely or fully prepared for undertaking the responsibility of the presidency. Really? Well, thanks, Ike. That narrows things down a bit. Ultimately, though, Eisenhower was right. What differentiates a good president from a bad president changes with time and circumstances. Some of the most eminently qualified individuals to assume the office, James Buchanan being the most prominent example, but Herbert Hoover could also be included in this category, have ended up complete failures as their wealth of experience did not prepare them for, and in some cases hindered, their ability to respond to the crises of the time. Meanwhile, some that have had little experience, such as Lincoln, or never anticipated or sought to end up in the office like Truman, would meet the challenges of their presidency head-on and prevail. If there's no magic formula for who is qualified to be president, then are there some guidelines as to how a president should govern? Harry S. Truman said that, quote, I know of no easy way to be president, and indeed, Many of his predecessors and successors in the office speak of the difficulties they faced with the office, both in getting used to it and in dealing with the crises that came their way. Part of the difficulty comes in dealing with the restraints that come with the checks and balances as stipulated in the Constitution. The president is imbued with great powers, including, as specified in Article II, authority as, quote, commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states the, quote, power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment, the, quote, power to make treaties, and the power to, quote, nominate and appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, 
and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for, and which shall be established by law. However, in these powers there are limits. His treaty-making and appointment powers are only with the caveat that they're made, quote, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate. Likewise, though the President is commander-in-chief, the military, like any other institution, requires funding, and only Congress can appropriate funds. Also, the President must, quote, from time to time give to the Congress information of the State of the Union. If the President wants things done, Congress must be involved. The President, however, possesses some powers over Congress. Article 2, Section 3 notes that the President can convene and adjourn special congressional sessions, while Article 1, Section 7 gives the President the authority to weigh in on bills approved by Congress before they become law. Quote, if he approve, he shall sign it, but if not, he shall return it, with his objections to that house in which it shall have originated, who shall enter the objections at large on their journal and proceed to reconsider it. The interaction between the executive and legislative branches is crucial to the making or breaking of a presidency. Lyndon B. Johnson asserted that, quote, there is but one way for a president to deal with the Congress, and that is continuously, incessantly, and without interruption. If it's really going to work, the relationship between the president and the Congress has got to be almost incestuous. He's got to know them even better than they know themselves. Indeed, keeping on the good side of Congress is crucial for many presidents, but then there are those that find success in running against Congress. Harry S. Truman focused his 1948 campaign on running against the do-nothing Congress and eked out a victory against Thomas C. Dewey. Some presidents with tumultuous relationships with Congress did not end up quite so well. Thus far, only two presidents have been impeached in U.S. history, Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton, with both being exonerated by the Senate. Richard Nixon's impending impeachment caused him to resign from the office in 1974, only a year and a half into his second term. In more modern history, Barack Obama found himself hampered in his ability to achieve administration goals by combative Republican congressional leadership. However, Obama and other presidents have proven just what the president can do despite Congress. Richard Nixon told journalist Theodore White that, quote, I've always thought the country could run itself domestically without a president. You need a president for foreign policy. Many presidents who have had difficulties moving through a domestic agenda have turned to foreign policy for a freer hand at achieving results. One of the best examples is the Camp David Accords an agreement reached due to negotiations between Egypt and Israel facilitated by Jimmy Carter. At the time, Carter and the nation were facing an energy crisis that, despite the administration's best efforts, did not seem to be abating and that Congress seemed in no hurry to assist with in terms of passing Carter's proposed comprehensive energy plan. Despite the contention expressed by the parties involved in the negotiations at Camp David, Carter did not have to answer to Congress or public opinion in helping the two sides seek an agreement, and his achievement as a diplomat is arguably the shining legacy of an otherwise troubled presidency. It should be remembered that the emphasis on foreign policy came much later in American history. Prior to the 20th century, though the executive branch engaged in foreign relations through the State Department, on most occasions, the president was not directly involved in diplomatic negotiations unless it was a matter of the utmost importance or could potentially result in war, and his main wielding of power in terms of foreign policy was in guiding policy in his political party or in pushing treaties, foreign policy bills, 
are declarations of war through Congress. Presidents would be responsible for receiving foreign representatives, as stated in Article 2, Section 3 of the Constitution, but he would not travel outside of the U.S. to engage in personal diplomacy and rarely established a relationship with a foreign leader beyond customary diplomatic pleasantries exchanged via letter until Theodore Roosevelt broke with tradition and made the first international trip ever by a sitting president to inspect the Panama Canal in 1906. Woodrow Wilson would introduce personal diplomacy into the president's wheelhouse with his decision in 1918 to attend the peace conference at Versailles at the end of World War I. These two elements that are now considered an essential part of the role of the president represent how dramatically the position has changed over time and serves as a reminder to all of us that all which we consider the role of the president in the present day may not be part of what defines the presidency in future generations. Before we delve into the story of George Washington in our next episode, I'd like to take the remainder of our time to discuss how the office was conceived. As we've already seen, the presidency was written into the Constitution, but why was such an office created in the first place? As noted by Washington biographer Edward J. Larson, quote, the presidency was the Constitutional Convention's most original creation, the American presidency was something new under the sun. As described by Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Number 70, quote, energy in the executive is a leading character in the definition of good government. What form the executive would take, though, was completely up in the air when the Constitutional Convention began its deliberations. Proposals ranged from an executive branch headed by more than one person to a seven-year term with no chance of re-election, to the executive being chosen by Congress, to the officers of the executive branch receiving no salary. As the only precondition that anyone had coming into the convention for an executive branch was that they were against the idea of a hereditary absolutist monarchy, and Hamilton even skirted that line by proposing to the convention what James Madison described in his notes as an, quote, elective monarch. The slate was truly clean for the convention to develop a new form of executive, different than either the monarchical system that prevailed in most of Europe, and indeed in many parts of the world, or the parliamentary executive system, such as that of the Prime Minister of the British Parliament. Finally, after months of deliberation, the office as it came to be included in the Constitution was patched together in early September 1787 through a series of small compromises on details. As described by Madison biographer Ralph Ketchum, quote, the convention had solved its most vexing structural problem and fashioned an office wholly without precedent either in the old confederation or in the history of large federal governments anywhere in the world. This did not mean that the work was done, however, not by a long shot. After the lengthy public debates and state ratifying conventions did their work and the federal government was getting started, one of the first debates of the first Congress once, of course, it was able to achieve a quorum, which did not happen until a month after the scheduled start date. And yes, feel free to laugh at the fact that, even then, Congress took forever to get things done. One of the first debates of the first Congress, as Washington was making his way to New York City for the inauguration, was over what the president should be called. Now, I know this seems like a small matter to us, but to a new nation preparing for a new leader and a newly created, previously unheard of office, 
during a time where rank and social status were much more regimented and defined than it is in most Western cultures in the present day. It was a very big deal. For the full story, as it's rather out of the scope of this episode, I'll have to refer you to Kathleen Bartoloni Toison's book, For Fear of an Elective King, George Washington and the Presidential Title Controversy of 1789, which provides an excellent explanation of the context of the question, as well as the details of the controversy. I merely use this as the first of what will prove to be many examples of establishing precedents to define and redefine the role of the president, a process which has been going on continuously since 1789. As our new president is taking up the reins of power, we are again seeing this play out. Sometimes it's for the better, other times not so much. History is yet to be written on our 45th president, but beginning in two weeks, I'd like to start us on the journey of exploring the trailblazer, our first president, George Washington. There will be no chopping of cherry trees in our condensed examination of the life of George Washington leading up to the presidency, but I hope you'll find it both entertaining and enlightening. Until then, I'd love to hear your questions, comments, and feedback. Please feel free to contact me via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, or on Twitter at presidencies89. Show notes are available on the blog at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. And this podcast will be available on both iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you so much for listening to this first episode, and until next time, take care. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.